dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. Why, thank you, 1940s band singer. Ha ha ha. Amazing how he's traveled through time just to tell me how much he loves me. Aw. Isn't that nice? Yeah, very sweet. Hey, this is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom's Survival Medicine Podcast, an epoch of audacity in an avaricious world, and a number one show about medical preparedness, mostly because it's the only show about medical preparedness. <laughs> And who am I? Why, I am Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. And here's my wonderful co-host, Amy Alton. I'm, in a nurse, I'm a nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. That's right. She's so bright, I've thrown away my tanning bed. <laughs> don't need it anymore. Got me nice, nice and orange. No, don't get too orange. <laughs> a light tan is okay. okay. On the show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom, the unconventional medical wisdom, plus at no extra charge, the ransom raves of an aging lunatic. But whatever it takes to get your family prepared for times of trouble, you're going to hear it right here. But first, you got to listen to this. Absolutely. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't, if the Hunger Games is your idea of a fun vacation. But answer me this, who's going to keep your family safe and healthy when the you-know-what really hits the fan, and the hospitals are out of commission, the doctors are gone, and someone you care about is sick or injured? Well, don't look at me. I'm just some guy yelling at strangers. <laughs> it's you, Shabu. In your heart, you know that when it's least expected, you're going to be elected. So get off your duff and learn some stuff, and why not get some medical supplies while you're at it? I'll bet Amy can tell you where. Absolutely. Store.doomandbloom.net. You'll find all of our professionally designed by us medical kits for anything from hiking, camping, traveling, RVs, boats, long hauls, short hauls, home, especially in the kitchen. <laughs> Check out our entire line. Hey, I want to mention that the Book Excellence Award winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook ranks a whopping four out of eight. No, four out of eight. No, wow, 4.8 out of five. Uh, yeah, not four, out, not four out of eight. <laughs> Over 2,800 reviews and is still high on bestseller lists throughout the country. So much so that it still hits the top several hundred of all books on Amazon. That's 10 million books 10 years after its publishing. So pretty good for an old book that's not the Bible. Now, if you haven't checked it out yet, you're going to find the black and white version on Amazon and the color version only at store.doomandbloom.net. We even have a color spiral bound version on the website. But I want to be clear. The book that you're you're seeing is not 10 years old. It's actually Brand, way more recent. That's absolutely right. <laughs> and I want to thank everyone who bought or considered buying our very first children's book, Snowby the First Snowman, published through Sky Pony Press. Our royalties, that's $717.41 from 2023, went to tunnelstotowers.com, 100% of it. Well, it's January, and you know what that means. I'm going to talk about cold weather. Yep. Cold weather hypothermia. A creature's environment determines in great part its real, real long-term success or failure. I mean, if it's a duck, that environment involves probably a lake or some kind of seacoast. For the, an elk, it's a forest. For bats, it's a cave. If you take at these animals out of their favorite environment, with few exceptions, they're just not going to be as successful. 
It's true that the family medic concentrates on the basics, like how to wrap an ankle sprain, how to stop bleeding. These things are so important, but special attention has to be given to the climate. The medic has to learn how to treat the medical issues most likely to be seen where they live. And so let's talk about what you should know about illness due to cold exposure, also called hypothermia. There are various mechanisms that result in heat loss from the body and eventually hypothermia. And they include respiration. In respiration, air is warmed upon inhaling more when breathed through the nose than the mouth. That warmth is then lost when you exhale. Evaporation. The body perspires, sweats that is, which releases heat from the body core. Heat loss through evaporation increases in dry, windy weather conditions. Radiation. The body loses heat, radiates heat out into the environment when the ambient temperature drops about below mm, 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Much lower temperatures cause heat loss more quickly. Then there's conduction. The body loses heat when its surface is in direct contact with cold temperatures. If you're naked outside, your core temperature is going to drop quickly. It's worse if you fall off a boat into frigid water. Water is denser than air, denser than air and removes heat from the body much faster than air does. And then there's convection. When a cooler op object is in motion against the body core, like wind, let's say, heat loss is inevitable. The thin layer of air next to the skin that we have is heated, heated slightly. That wind removes that layer and makes the body use energy to reheat itself. Wind chill is one example of air convection. If the ambient temperature is 30 degrees Fahrenheit, but the wind chill factor is 5 degrees Fahrenheit, you lose heat from your body as if it were actually 5 degrees Fahrenheit. So illness related to the body's exposure, exposure to extreme cold is referred to as hypothermia. Hypothermia occurs when the body core temperature drops below what's necessary for normal function and metabolism. The normal body core temperature is defined as between 97 and 99 degrees Fahrenheit, somewhere around there. That's 36 to 37.5 degrees Celsius for folks on the metric system. Uh, symptoms that are related to cold exposure begin to manifest once the core temperature dips below 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 degrees Celsius. It's important for the medic to recognize a hypothermic family or group member and to educate each and every family or group member as to the signs and symptoms. The body, when it's exposed to cold, kicks into action to produce heat once the body core cools down below about 95 degrees. One way it does this is by a process called vasoconstriction. In vasoconstriction, blood vessels tighten to decrease the flow to the extremities, thereby conserving core temperature. When vasoconstriction fails to maintain a normal body temperature, the body attempts to produce heat by muscle contractions known as shivering. This will be the first symptom you're likely to see in a person that's getting sick from cold exposure. As hypothermia worsens, more symptoms are going to become apparent if you do not warm the patient. Uh, aside from shivering, the most notable symptoms of hypothermia are going to be related to mental status. The victim will appear confused, uncoordinated. As the condition worsens, speech becomes slurred and the patient appears apathetic, lethargic, uninterested really in helping themselves. They may indeed fall asleep, want to take a nap. And this occurs due to the effect of cooling temperature on the brain. The colder the body core gets, the slower the brain works. Brain function is supposed to cease at a body temperature of about 68 degrees Fahrenheit, although there have been exceptional cases where people, usually small children, survived even lower temperatures.
Now, how severe a case of hypothermia are you dealing with? Although individual cases present differently from each other, most sources recognize different levels of hypothermia by body temperature. Mild, 93 to 97 degrees Fahrenheit, now that's a person who has mild hypothermia. And that person will usually still be awake and alert, but shivering. Hands and feet are going to be cold, and they may complain of pain or numbness in the extremities. Loss of dexterity is often noted. Now, moderate hypothermia, that's about 90 to 93 degrees Fahrenheit, well, mental status does begin to suffer, and efforts to produce heat by shivering actually may decrease and even stop. Severe hypothermia, that's 82 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit. That is really bad. The severely hypothermic person is going to stop shivering. Mental status changes are going to become clearly apparent. They're going to be confused, lethargic, have memory loss. The muscles of the person are going to appear less flexible. They'll be uncoordinated. Speech will be slurred. And as I mentioned before, this unusual apathy or denial regarding the seriousness of the situation is something that you will often see. And critical hypothermia, less than 82 degrees Fahrenheit, well, that victim is likely to be unconscious. Respirations are going to be impaired, and the pulse is going to be slow and difficult to feel. Skin will be cold and cyanotic, that is blue in color, due to lack of oxygen, and muscles are going to be rigid. And you may even see that the pupils are dilated. That person is close to death. Now, treating hypothermia in general, you would assume that anyone that is encountered in cold weather with altered mental status is hypothermic until proven otherwise. I'm going to say this again. Assume that anyone encountered in cold weather with altered mental status is hypothermic until proven otherwise. Important measures to take. You want to get that person out of the cold. Transport them as soon as possible to a warm, dry location. If you're unable to move the person out of the cold, shield them as much as you possibly can. Be sure to place a barrier between them and the cold, cold ground. In mild cases, exercise to produce heat. The victims that are alert and can help themselves can move without difficulty. Well, mild exercise can indeed help raise body temperature as long as you can keep that person dry. Avoid exertion in people that have moderate hypothermia or worse because these people may not be able to function and do the things they need to do. Uh, you want to monitor breathing. A person with severe hypothermia may be unconscious, so you want to verify that the patient's breathing, check for a pulse. If there is none, well, assume that person is still revivable, begin CPR right away, elevate the feet like you would for anyone in shock, about 12 inches above the level of the heart. Then you want to remove wet clothing if there is wet clothing uh, in a hypothermic person. If a person's wet, remove that is going to cause you to lose heat faster. Remove the clothes gently, cover the person with layers of dry blankets, including the head, but you have to leave the face clear so you can make sure you can monitor breathing. You want to share body heat possible. Well, this is controversial. A lot of people don't sort of cringe at this idea, but there are circumstances where it's necessary to warm the patient's body by removing your clothing maybe and making skin-to-skin -skin contact. Quickly cover both of your bodies with blankets, and like I said, it's a cringe-worthy suggestion. A lot of people don't believe in it, but it's important to remember you're trying to save a life. Now, if that victim is awake and alert, you want to give them warm oral fluids. But that's if and only if the affected person is alert and able to swallow. Okay, if that's the case, you can provide a warm, non-caffeinated beverage. Now, despite the image of the St. Bernard dog saving lost alpine mountaineers with casks of brandy around their neck, alcohol is a very bad idea. It may give you a warm feeling, but it causes your blood vessels to expand. And this accelerates heat loss from the surface of your body and negates the body's efforts to stay warm. 
Alcohol and recreational drugs also cause impaired judgment. Those under the influence might fail to dress appropriately for cold temperatures. Uh, you also want to see if, if you have them, you should use warm, dry compresses. They have these first aid shake and break warm compresses uh, that are very helpful. You should definitely have some in your medical kit or warm water, not hot, uh, warm water in, uh, let's say 104 degrees or so in a warm pla in a plastic bottle that will effectively apply heat to the body core if it's placed in special places, the neck, armpit, chest wall, or groin. The reason why is because here are blood vessels that are running close to the skin that can get heat effectively to the body core. Don't use hot water, a heating pad, or a heating lamp directly on the person. Extreme heat can damage the skin and cause strain on the heart as well, so it could be a problem. Now, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You want to prevent hypothermia, and to do that, you have to anticipate the climate through which you're going to be traveling. That includes uh, current temperature, wind conditions, rain and snow. You want to condition yourself physically to be fit for the challenge, and you want to travel with others, uh, at least with one partner, if at all possible, and have enough food and water available for the entire trip. It may be useful to remember this simple acronym COLD, C-O-L-D. This stands for Cover, Overexertion, Layering, and Dry. Cover. C is for Cover. Protect your head by wearing a hat. This is going to avoid the loss of body heat from your head. A, a surprising amount of heat is lost from the head area due to its large surface area and its tendency to be uncovered. In instead of using gloves to cover your hands, use mittens. Mittens are more helpful than gloves because they keep your fingers in contact with one another, conserving heat. O in cold is for overexertion. Avoid activities that cause you to sweat a lot. Wet, sweaty clothing accelerates the onset of hypothermia. Rest when necessary and frequently self-assess for cold-related changes. Pay careful attention to the status of your elderly or juvenile group members. L is for layering. Loose-fitting, lightweight clothing and layers do the best job of insulating you against the cold. Add or subtract layers as needed. Use tightly woven, water-repellent material for wind protection and wool or silk inner layers to hold heat better than, let's say, cottonwood. There are a lot of synthetic materials like Gore-Tex, uh, Primaloft, Insulate. These work well also, especially cover the neck, head, hands, and feet. And D in cold stands for dry. Keep as dry as you can. Get out of wet clothing as soon as you can. It's very easy for snow to get into gloves and boots, so pay particular attention to your hands and feet. If you can put together a reasonable shelter with a campfire, well, do so. Hypothermia can kill even the most rugged survivalists, so dress appropriately, make shelter, and keep warm. If you can accomplish these goals, a harsh winter will be just a bump on the road, not the end of the road for you and your people. Hey, one thing you can say about this year's cold and flu season is that it's pretty much the same as every other in one sense, is that the latest strain is usually different from last year's. And usually the difference is small, and that's how vaccines work. They take last year's virus and make this year's vaccine. Influenza vaccines that are produced in a particular year are derived from certain proteins that are found in last year's virus. The CDC makes a determination about what strain they expect to be dominant in the coming year, and companies base their decisions on these predictions. From a COVID standpoint, that strain is called JN- or, or period, dot one. JN.1 is derived from a variant of the famed Omicron COVID strain, although the original Omicron strain no longer exists, and this one here that has replaced it has now comprised about 60% of all new cases of COVID. 
Now, if you have the material from last year's COVID or flu viruses, why are vaccines sometimes so ineffective in achieving their purpose? In one recent year, the flu vaccine gave you no more than 19% protection against the next year's virus. To understand why, let's talk about two concepts, antigenic drift and antigenic shift. Antigenic drift is something that happens pretty much every year. Viruses are notorious for their ability to mutate, but fortunately their mutations rarely make a major change to their genetic makeup. When the changes are so small that the current virus going around is essentially the same or very similar to the previous one, it's called antigenic drift. In this circumstance, vaccines are more effective. That is, they reached the surprisingly modest CDC goal of about 40 to 60% prevention rate because they're fighting essentially the same virus or very, very, very similar. Antigenic shift, however, that's different. Sometimes a virus undergoes a major mutation or alternatively, two viruses combine to make a significant change in the nature of a virus. For example, if the Ebola virus primarily lives in fruit bats in Africa, some mutation along the way made it able to be transmitted to human beings. Perhaps another mutation made it more easily transmitted to humans through bodily secretions. These significant changes in the genetic makeup are called antigenic shifts. With these shifts, all bets are off with regards to predicting the success of a vaccine in preventing disease. To take an even more extreme example, if the Ebola virus mutated to make it easily transmittable via airborne droplets, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Now, it can be difficult to predict the evolution of the COVID variants, but the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention projects that JN.1 cases will increase throughout the winter. The situation is fluid, so much so that another strain, HV.1, was the dominant strain as recently as early December. And during the summer, it was EG.5. Now, the good news is that so far, JN.1 doesn't seem to be causing more life-threatening cases of COVID than other circulating variants. Hospitalizations in total are up, but not deaths so far. One remarkable aspect of JN.1 is its rapid evolution, which suggests that it may be better at evading immune systems than some of its previous strains. In any case, it's nothing to sneeze at, that's for sure. Of course, you can't guarantee you'll avoid a cold, flu, RSV, COVID, or other respiratory infection this winter, but protective measures can help. We call them respiratory hygiene. They include things like practicing good hand hygiene. You want to wash your hands thoroughly and often during the day. You want to clean countertops, doorknobs, and other common area items to reduce the viral load. A dilute bleach solution is all it takes, maybe one part in 10, uh, one part bleach to ten parts, nine parts water. That would probably do just fine. You want to avoid social situations where someone is sick, especially if they're actively coughing or sneezing. Remember that can reach people that are several feet away. Sick persons should cover their mouth and nose with tissues or other barrier when coughing or sneezing. If you don't have tissue, sneeze or cough into your elbow or sleeve. If you have tissues, definitely dispose of them safely. Now, of course, if there are seriously ill individuals in your household, you want to quarantine them in an area away from high traffic spots in the home. Uh, now, N95s, while not considered effective against COVID, certainly got a bad rap, though, because they do provide some measure of protection against some other viruses. Remember that staying indoors is not particularly protective against respiratory infections. The viral load in a closed and crowded room is probably much higher than the air outside. And going outside with wet hair doesn't mean anything either. They're viruses. They have to go up your nose and your mouth or other mucous membranes. They do not penetrate your hair follicles. 
So stock up on chicken soup because, well, well, actually that's a myth too. While your chicken soup may make you feel cozier, if you're run down from a cold, there's no medical evidence that actually helps get rid of the cold. The University of Rochester Medical Center notes that the steam coming off hot soup can act as a humidifier, maybe, and loosen up your sinuses. Maybe that is how it helps, but that's probably about it. Of course, I think it also helps with hydration. I think it's very important to stay hydrated if you're, if you're ill. There's no harm in eating the soup while you're sick, so go ahead and keep doing it. If it's something that's tasty and comforting while you're feeling bad, it'll, like I said, help keep you hydrated. And now, a word from our sponsor. Hello, citizen. Are you feeling low? Don't have it like you used to? Has your get-up-and-go got up and went? Well, consider the wholesome goodness of Prevalaxian Balance, a healthy mix of fruits, vegetables, sleep aids, and Alzheimer drugs in one tiny capsule. Made from probiotic macronutrients, which are processed down to a fine ash, Prevalaxian Balance will give you the pep you need to run that marathon and get a good night's sleep 10 minutes later. Mix with water and you can use it to seal that hole in your canoe. Prevalaxian Balance your natural road to good health, a better night's sleep, and a higher IQ. Available wherever cure-alls are sold. Hey, you know that being the family medic off the grid in survival settings, well, that isn't always about treating bloat wounds. Believe it or don't. Mundane problems are also on the menu, and you better know how to treat them. In normal times, this is the time of year, face it, that kids have returned to school, and lots of children together in close quarters means there's an issue that you might have to deal with, and that's head lice. Wow. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention believes that there's going to be 6 to 12 million children contracting head lice infestations. And you can bet that it's going to be an issue that runs rampant in survival communities as well, so you should know about it. You might have noticed that I mentioned infestation, not infection. Now, what's the difference? The main difference between infection and infestation is that infection is the invasion of microorganisms, whereas infestation is the invasion of more complex organisms. So infections are caused by protozoans, by bacteria, by viruses, by fungi, while infestations are typically caused by insects and worms and maybe even rodents. So let's start by talking about head lice. Head lice have a scientific name, and that is Pediculus humanus, capitus. Pediculus means lice. Humanus means that it relates to humans. And capitus means that it relates to the head of humans. Head lice are basically parasitic wingless insects about two to three millimeters long. It's about the size of a sesame seed. And they feed on blood that they obtain by biting the scalp of humans. Their presence is known as pediculosis, and it causes irritation and itching in a lot of people. Although, interestingly enough, many kids don't seem to notice them. Their less developed immune systems cause less of a reaction than you might see in an adult, let's say. Lice, uh, by the way, lice, a louse is one louse, and many lice are lice. And lice are generally speaking what we call species-specific. You can't, for example, get lice from your dog or cat like you maybe could get fleas. You get them only from other humans. Head lice are so specialized that they're built to survive only on human head hair. When they're not attached, they perish within about three days or so. The good news is that although they might make you miserable, head lice don't transmit diseases to other humans, like mosquitoes might. Body and pubic lice, now those are different stories altogether, and we'll discuss them soon. Now, although a house full of kids with head lice might make you wary of the sanitary conditions in the residence, they're actually not really related to cleanliness. A clean house could have kids with lice because of contact they've had with other children elsewhere. You should know that the life cycle of lice contains three stages. One is nits. Nits are oval-shaped, yellow-white lice eggs, and they exist on the hair shaft, usually very close to the scalp. The nymph, 
A nymph is a juvenile louse. Nymphs are smaller than adult lice, but they'll mature into adults after feeding on human blood for about maybe 9 to 12 days. And the adult louse, which is a yellowish gray or brownish red, depending on whether they've had a meal recently or not. Now, the most common symptom is itching of the head, which worsens about two to six weeks after the initial infection. Infestation. Oops, you got me there. In subsequent infestations, itching tends to appear earlier. I guess your immune system realizes that they are not supposed to be there and causes you to start itching earlier with subsequent second, third, fourth infections. The bite reaction is actually very mild and might or might not be possible to see between hairs. In people with long hair, bites might be noted on the back of the neck. In cases where itching is severe, excessive scratching causes skin breakdown. That could lead to bacterial skin infections like cellulitis. I've written about that and talked about that on this podcast a lot. At the other end of the spectrum, many individuals actually don't experience anything at all. Now, no itching, no nothing whatsoever. They don't even know they have it. Pediculosis is diagnosed by finding the live lice and the unhatched nits on the scalp or individual hairs. Infestation can be confused, however, with dandruff, lint, or even dried hair product. If you're looking for eggs on hair, could be some dried hair product instead. Nits look like small bits of dandruff, indeed, that are stuck to hairs. They're more easily seen when you use a black light to see them. That causes them to fluoresce into light blue dots attached to the hair shafts near the scalp. Black lights, let's face it, you're probably not going to have that off the grid, so a fine-toothed metal pet comb run through the hair is probably a more practical option to reveal the adult lice and the nits. The diligence required to do this effectively actually has led to the coining of a term. Do you know what that is? Yes, nitpicking. How about that? You'll find the nits firmly attached to the hair shaft about a quarter of an inch from the scalp. They generally appear yellowish-white and oval-shaped. The application of olive oil to the comb, by the way, might make them easier to remove. Sometimes the infestation goes extinct on its own. An extinct infestation will have no living lice present and just these empty white-colored nits further up the shaft than one-quarter inch. That's sort of a clue. Once an active infestation is identified in a family member, everyone in the household, and I mean everyone, must be thoroughly examined. In survival or other situations where lice are common, weekly examination of children, that's an important routine duty of the medic. Any child frequently scratching their head should be evaluated. That's wise to disinfect the clothes, towels, bedding, hairbrushes of the infested person and those with which they were in contact. With whom they were in contact, actually. Leave these items outside for three days. The lice, remember, can't, head lice at least, can't survive more than that without a blood meal. Or alternatively, wash in hot water, 140 degrees Fahrenheit, for a full 30 minutes. Boiling combs and brushes for 5 to 10 minutes after using them, that probably will also be a helpful idea. Freezing for over 24 hours may succeed as well. It's possible that if you're in very cold weather, that might be an option for you. It's also recommended to vacuum the floor and furniture where the infested person spent time. Now, having said that, it's highly unlikely that someone's going to get lice that fell on the floor or furniture as they just can't survive long without a human host. Nits, by the way, can't even hatch if they're not kept at the same temperature as you might find in a human scalp. Now, there are medications that kill lice. These are known as pediculicides. Over-the-counter shampoos or lotions contain things like permethrin, like Nix, N-I-X, and these are usually the first option that are used to deal with lice. Permethrin is a synthetic form of pyrethrin, which is a chemical derived from chrysanthemum flowers. And it should be noted that the effectiveness of permethrin 
is starting to decrease around the country due to resistance on the part of some varieties of what they call super lice that are resistant to some of these traditional remedies. A non-prescription lotion containing ivermectin, yes, ivermectin, is called Sklice, S-K-L-I-C-E, and that's toxic to lice. That's been approved for adults as well as children over the age of six months. You would apply it once to dry hair, starting at the scalp, working it outward so the, until the entire head is covered, then rinse it off with water for after 10 minutes. One application is about 75% effective in eliminating the problem. If not, repeat probably about a week later. Oral prescription ivermectin, yes, oral prescription ivermectin, is known as stromectol, and that's available to adults and children over 15 kilograms in weight as a tablet. The oral drug effectively treats lice after only about two doses, but they are given eight days apart. This drug is typically used when other treatments haven't been effective. There is uh, the topical prescription drug malathion. Well, you might have recognized that name. You might have used it on your plants. That's effective for those over five years old when applied to hair and then rubbed into the scalp. Malathion has a high alcohol content and is flammable, however, so make sure you keep it from heat sources like hair dryers. Very important. Then there's something called Spinosad, a brand name Natroba. That's useful in adults and children over the age of four. You can apply it to dry hair and the scalp for about 10 minutes, then rinse with water. The treatment usually doesn't need to be repeated, but it can be used again for seven days if live lice are still present. Perhaps the simplest home remedy is the conditioner and comb method, which avoids irritating chemicals and eliminates issues with strains of uh, insecticide-resistant lice. First, you apply hair conditioner to damp hair. Then you use your fine-tooth lice comb to work from the scalp through the hair tips to remove adult lice. This involves frequently wiping off the comb, by the way. This process should be repeated twice, about a week apart, to break the head lice life cycle. As all the eggs will hatch within a week or so, repeating treatments again and targeting the adult lice before a new batch of eggs is laid should work. Other natural options to kill head lice include the use of products such as eucalyptus or tea tree oil, other home remedies such as putting vinegar, rubbing alcohol, olive oil, mayonnaise, or melted butter under a shower cap, however, this is generally thought to be ineffective. The CDC states that swimming does not drown lice, so be aware. Now, less common but more dangerous versions of lice include body lice and pubic lice and scabies, although scabies really aren't lice. With the advent of homeless cities throughout the nation, these, well, these can be an issue in normal times as much as in disaster settings. Body lice are pediculus humanus humanus. Now, hum pediculus, remember, means lice. Humanus means they're on a human. And humanus is a human body. It's basically the area that they live. And this appeared much more recently than head lice, probably around the time humans started, guess what, wearing clothes, sure enough, probably about 160,000 years or so ago. As the concept of doing laundry occurred somewhat later than that, you can imagine that constant contact with dirty clothes caused frequent infestations. Now, situations where washing your clothes or your body regularly in survival, isn't a, those aren't an option, well, that can cause problems with body lice. So you can see the significance for the medic in survival settings. Unlike head lice, body lice carry many diseases that can affect humans, diseases that can cause problems more serious than just an itchy, itchy rash. Body lice nits are also, unlike head lice, more likely to be found in the seams of your clothing than on your body. Interesting. So mostly on your clothing, not on your body. They just go there to feed. Body lice infestation, that's called pediculosis corporis, also known as hobos or vagabonds disease, 
It's a skin condition caused by body lice that lay their eggs on clothing and to a lesser extent on human hairs. They manifest as intense rich itching and rashes. Long-term infestations lead to skin areas that become thickened and darker than the surrounding skin tone. Body lice has also been linked to ep outbreaks of infectious epidemic diseases such as typhus, uh, also trench fever, and epidemic relapsing fever in places like homeless camps. Pediculosis corporis, that's spread through prolonged direct physical contact with a person who has had them or with that person's clothing, to towels, or bedding. The lice themselves are slightly larger than head lice and prefer to live on dirty clothes, especially the seams, as I mentioned before, rather than on the body itself. They go to the human body only to feed. And they're sturdier than their cousins. They actually can live without human contact for about 30 days or so. Examination of clothing and bedding seams usually identifies the problem. Destruction of the infested clothing, if possible, is the appropriate strategy here. Sometimes using medication is unnecessary as lice have left with the clothes. Now, don't bet on it, however. Body lice are primarily treated by thoroughly washing yourself and any contaminated items with soap and water at 130-140 degrees Fahrenheit. You want to dry clothing and bedding in a machine dryer if it's possible using the hot cycle. Ironing clothing that can't be washed that may also be an effective means of getting rid of the lice. Of course, destruction of the infested clothing honestly is the most appropriate strategy. Now, if you can't discard an item but it can't be washed or dried, you should seal it in a plastic bag and store it for about two weeks. Mattresses, couches, other upholstered furnitures should be sprayed with lice-killing products to eliminate eggs from the seams. Exposure to infested items, that should be avoided for at least those two weeks. Itching and skin irritation can be treated with about 25 milligrams of diphenhydramine, that's Benadryl, or other antihistamine. Hydrocortisone cream may also help. Natural remedies include aloe vera gel, oatmeal paste, and ice. Some suggest vinegar, but honestly, that may not be effective. In some cases, stronger medicines called pediculicides aren't needed, but if these measures don't work, an over-the-counter lotion or shampoo similar to that used for head lice, like Nix or Rid, are viable options. Other types of lice actually inhabit the human groin, and we commonly call these crabs. These are actually pubic lice. These guys have more colorful nicknames. My favorite is crotch crickets. <laughs> Although famously, they're passed from the pubic area of one person to another via close contact, quote-unquote. Pubic lice can be found in other hairy places, even the armpit. Severe itching, that's the main symptom of pubic lice, although they're sometimes seen on a patient that coincidentally has other sexually transmitted diseases, pubic lice do not actually transmit them. Now, having said that, all lice cause irritation that can have major implications on the health of family members because all of the itching can cause breaking of the skin, allowing other infections to develop. Now, interestingly enough, pubic lice are a rarity among sexually transmitted diseases in that they're one of the few that are not prevented by the use of a condom. Now, scabies, that's different. That's confused with uh, pubic lice a lot or crabs a lot. But scabies is not crabs. It's caused by another creature entirely, tiny eight-legged mites of the species Sarcoptus scabii. Like pubic lice, scabies can be passed through sexual contact or other direct skin-to-skin -skin contact with another human, but not from animals. Unlike lice, however, the mites don't live and reproduce on hair shafts, but they actually burrow into the skin, forming these small raised red bumps that may become crusty. These areas may hold hundreds of mite eggs. Yuck. Itching is usually severe and most intense at night. It should be noted that scabies can affect skin folds, even in areas that don't have a lot of hair, such as those of the wrists, elbows, or even between fingers and toes. Infestation with pubic lice, scabies mice, they're treated the same way in terms of using lotions and shampoos as those used for body lice. 
It should be noted that continued vigilance is needed despite having treated the condition. If living lice or mites are still noted, you got to repeat this in 7 to 10 days, maybe even again if that's absolutely necessary, usually not. If nits are seen, lice combs such as those used for head lice, they're recommended. By the way, use the ones that you get in pet stores. They're usually made of metal. The plastic lice combs you might find online, they're not as good. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alden, I'm Joe Alden, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.